Welcome to Trust Issues, a podcast by Kepler Trust Intelligence. Please be aware that there can be a time lag when we release podcasts, meaning time-sensitive information may no longer be accurate at the time of publication. Also note that past performance is not a reliable indicator of future results. The value of investments can fall as well as rise, and you may get back less than you invested when you decide to sell your investments. It's strongly recommended that if you are a private investor, independent financial advice should be taken before making any investment or financial decision. Finally, Kepler Partners LLP has a relationship with the company covered in this podcast, which may impair its objectivity. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Trust Issues. This week, we are joined by Dominic Scriven. Dominic is uh, not only our first return guest on this podcast, but he is also the founder and chairman of Dragon Capital. Uh, Now, Dragon, I think most listeners will be aware, is the asset management company that manages Vietnam Enterprise Investments, or Vail for short. And... um, I should say, as a as a as a way by way of introduction, I went to see Dominic speak about twelve months ago in London, and he made Vietnam sound so interesting uh, that I ended up inviting him to be one of the first guests on the podcast. But not only that, I made a pledge after going to see him that I would, um, yeah, go to Vietnam, which I have done and I just got back recently. So hopefully, we can uh, weave in some of the observations I made during my time there. But yeah, so Dominic, thanks very much for joining us. Um, perhaps by way of introduction, you can just talk a little bit about Dragon and your background uh, for someone that is not familiar with you or, or the company. Sure, David. Um, good afternoon and, and a good afternoon to all of those of you who might be listening to this. Um, and how nice to hear your recent experience of, of Vietnam, David. I should I should open, of course, by... Uh, noting that today is Ho Chi Minh's birthday. So happy birthday, Ho Chi Minh. It's a day we remember every year, the 19th of May. So um, this is my 30th year in Vietnam with Dragon. It's been an interesting journey and continues to be so. We're a, we're an investment group. We we manage about $5 billion on behalf of um, a wide range of people, um, not least my mother, um, but also... Uh, you know, sovereign wealth funds and um, and investors from Asia and families and endowments and all sorts of, of different people. Um, the core of our, um, you know, of our, of our offering is represented by a London listed investment trust, VEIL, Vale, as we call it, which is about $1.7 billion. Anyway, all we do is investing in Vietnam, mostly in the stock market, some in the bond market. Um, uh, and uh, and um, I'm happy to talk through that or anything related to it, David. Thank you. Sure. So when we last spoke, one of the points you made was that Vietnam was arguably better set up to deal with some of the of the headwinds that the global economy was and and definitely still is facing. So I think the the big ones there really are inflation and um, the fallout from the war in Ukraine. Obviously, those two are tied together to some extent. So could you give maybe an update? I mean, how are things looking 12 months on in Vietnam? Um, thanks, David. Bit of a, a bit of a mixed scorecard, I suppose. I mean, on the, on the core aspects of stability, um, you know, which is, is true at a macro level and also in the, in the lives of ordinary citizens, I think Vietnam, Vietnam has played quite well. 
So um, the country, as as um, people might be aware, is a, is a very big exporter of grains and a very big producer and exporter of protein. You know, so where inflation hits the pocket most in 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 terms of people's food bills, um, it, there was very little impact there. Uh, you know, you know, not just availability, but also the distribution networks you know, the absence of distortions. <clears throat> so, you know, f- that food inflation was 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 not really a feature and, and continues not to be a feature. On the energy side, um, <clears throat> Vietnam pr- produces a lot of its own energy. It imports more or less just a little bit of gasoline. Um, but more than that, the power company is owned by the state and the government didn't increase power prices at all last year. Uh, and and so the the that was an effective subsidy of a billion and a half dollars for the power company. Um, but you put that against government's revenues of a hundred billion dollars. So you know presumably the government felt that was a price they were well able to to pay. They've increased power prices three percent so far this year. So slightly adjusting, but but essentially very successful in in that respect. Less uh, immune than um, we had thought, frankly, within Dragon. Uh, I think the the convolution of markets and sentiment and um, particularly the US dollar, actually, uh, that, you know, were whipsawing around last year definitely caused um, a little bit of nervousness and that fed through into our market. So, of course, the equity market in Vietnam last year had a a pretty poor year. It was down thirty five percent, which is which is not good. I mean, it, you know, one can argue that that's reflecting a lot at the at this stage. But it was a it was an unpleasant year for most people investing in Vietnam last year, uh, and so and I think that was because we were collectively, I'd say, we all of us um, in the investing world around Vietnam and, and maybe even in the government were a little bit perhaps complacent about how immune. We, we would thought. The last point, though, that I'd make is that um, while definitely, you know, there, there were some signs of, of, uh, of, of stress in the real economy. So, you know, manufacturing exports, um, to, you know, began declining in the third quarter, fourth quarter, first quarter of this year. Some people have lost their jobs. But despite that, you know, this long term driver, which is the sort of dynamo repositioning of global manufacturing supply chains in the favor of Vietnam remains, I'm happy to say, very much intact. Yeah, so that was something that actually, when I was visiting Vietnam, came across quite a lot. I mean, without much prodding, people would talk um, openly about this sort of non-aligned policy that the government there has and how they're trying to be friends with everybody and take a neutral stance to politics, which was uh, you know, a bit refreshing in the polarized world in which we live. Um, but I wonder if that has more tangible effects in, say, the Vail portfolio, where I think that the main thing that I see um, is companies are eager to move away from China. And I think one that's not just US companies, Japanese companies, Korean companies. Um, and so one factor there is, is obviously political tensions. People are worried about what is going to happen between the US and China. But another factor is just um, cost. So China is now its GDP, GDP per capita is actually quite high, uh, and it's no longer you know, a very cheap place to manufacture goods, whereas Vietnam is 
is still kind of is and also has this more favorable demographic. So I wonder if you could just talk about those trends a little bit. Yeah, so you're um, an interesting set of reflections and questions um, that you touch on there, David. I mean, take, take the, the sort of geopolitical one. Vietnam was indeed a member of the non-aligned movement. Many of us d- these days don't, don't remember that. But it was a really interesting attempt to create an alternative, an alternative forum in the Cold War to people who didn't want to be you know, affiliated to either end of the spectrum. And um, very much that concept is coming back now. Of course, times are different, but uh, people talk about mid-range or mid-level powers. So, you know, Turkey and Nigeria and Brazil and Pakistan and Bangladesh and Vietnam and Indonesia, these sort of countries. Uh, And there's definitely, in a geopolitical sense, there's a degree of... um, of, of buzz going on, uh, not least by the major powers, uh, all themselves trying to access, you know, relationships with, with this group of people. Vietnam's long said that it has a policy of not being in a strategic alliance with anyone, um, but being friends of everyone, not being in a military defence reliance with anyone and being friends of everyone. Where you see this in the real world is the enormous um, success of Vietnam in signing trade agreements. You know, to, the, to many of us, trade agreements are rather a dry subject, you know, many pages dealing with intense details. But, but the Vietnamese have, have leapt into the breach and signed more, more trade agreements than any other emerging economy that I know in the world. And this is a, this is a reflection of um, the willingness, the keenness of Vietnam to be engaged with all players, uh, with all players. And of course, what that leads to is a very, very um, active trade, uh, trading sector. So exports and imports are each equivalent to 100% of GDP. It's an enormous number. I don't know another country that has that sort of level. And and so yes, that's been the the, the you know the, the long term positioning of, of Vietnam. And, you, and you're right that in regards to you know what we always call the factor of the world, China, um, labour costs have increased, demographics are under pressure, uh, labour costs are twice uh, in China. They're twice what they are in Vietnam. And there's this recent sort of so so actually you could go back you go to when SARS I don't know if anybody remembers SARS 2003 when the global garment industry was was shocked horrendously shocked that all of its assets were in China and its production was 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 massacred so you've got then the original idea of China plus one and then and then we got the uh, evolution of trade agreements with Obama you know beginning to. To, to draw a line around China and, and then Trump and et cetera. And, 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 and then we've got the, the most recent couple of years. And there's no question, people, I mean, people are being prodded, aren't they? Big brands, names around the world, manufacturers are being prodded not to have, you know, to diversify out of, out of, out of China. Of course, Vietnam is, let's remember, Vietnam is right next door to China. So if you're diversifying out of southern China into northern Vietnam, you're you're making a distance of a hundred kilometers. You know, it's not it's not far. And people 
um, you know, have share a Confucian outlook on life, eat with chopsticks, work hard. It's, you know, it's not it's not complex. And in fact, even in in the the northernmost port in Vietnam, Hai Phong, is the easiest way to access three hundred million Chinese people. So you know, there are there are all sorts of um, uh, interweavings going on here. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So another thing that really struck me while I was there was the level of uptake in smartphones. Now, this is something that you hear all about, about all the time when you go to conferences or you're reading um, emerging market updates from fund managers or analysts or whoever it might be. Um, but it's one thing to read about it and, to, and then kind of another to see it in practice. Uh, and so the, I think the, the best example of this was I was, you can... Um, hop on the back of a, of a moped as a, as a taxi. And in one instance, I got on the back of this guy's moped to go from you know, A to B. Uh, he stopped at a traffic light and he was using a, an a Android phone for his GPS and his Android phone was better than mine. And when we stopped at the traffic light, he then took out an iPhone and his iPhone was almost better than mine. And it was just very apparent that that had created quite a lot of new services. So I think of something like banking or payments or e-commerce or even you know, ordering a taxi like you do here. Um, and actually look this up and the, the level of adoption of smartphones in Vietnam has it's gone from, I think, sub 30% about a decade ago to near to close to 100%. So almost everyone in the country has one. Um, the number of phone contracts is actually higher than the population. So you get a sense of how many people have them. Um, and I suppose the, the point I'm making here is it just really wasn't apparent to me how impactful this was. You know, it's, again, as I said, it's one thing to, to read about it in an analyst report. It's another thing to actually see it on the ground. So I just wonder if you can talk a bit about how technology, whether it's smartphones or something else, is actually, is actually changing the way people in Vietnam do business, uh, pay for things, bank, all those sorts of things. And whether that, again, has any sort of trickle down into the, into the way Vail invests. Yeah, very, 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 very definitely so, David. I mean, th- this is an issue, of course, um, that that has characterized recent years in across the developing world. I mean, one thinks of India and its extraordinarily successful digitization of individual accounts to hook, you know, individuals into the payment system. Um, so it's not just it, 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 Vietnam is not alone by any stretch. Um, but the, the Vietnam is definitely a smartphone country. Absolutely. I mean, it happens to be a, an enormous manufacturer of smartphones. I think 50% of Samsung's smartphones are, are made in Vietnam and Apple's just moved there and, you know, all of this sort of stuff. So there's, there's a lot actually of bits and pieces being put together into, into hardware. But more importantly than that, as you allude, I think, is the, um, the leapfrogging that happens. You know, we've got a very young, comparatively young population in Vietnam. I forget what the median age is, but it's something like, you know, in the 30s somewhere. Um, And um, uh, so, you know, an an inherent ability to grasp the new in size, big numbers, and and to build their lives around, uh, around the smartphone. Absolutely. I mean, I feel a bit of a dinosaur with a laptop. In Vietnam, I really do. Yeah, and you know we're we're closer to to home. So you talk about finance. Um, one of the interesting things in the investment space has been the rapid increase in Vietnamese citizens 
opening securities accounts and becoming investors in the stock market. So before COVID, it was about 1.7 million accounts. It's now over 7 million accounts. Um, and that's been facilitated by, facilitated by EKYC. So yeah, it's something you can do from home. But really, it's been facilitated by digitalization of the whole investment process. So people can be having a cup of coffee in the morning and trading in the stock market. And th- this, I'm sure, you know, we're at, the, we're at the early stages of this. The population of Vietnam is 100 million. So, you know, the urban population is, is, is about 40 million. Um, and so a good number more than 7 million will be uh, ending up trading in the, in the stock market. And it's true in, in banks. Of course, we have that here in this country, in the UK, don't we, of, of um, uh, you know, credit scoring, digital loans, digital credit. Um, all of this stuff is happening in Vietnam. Absolutely, absolutely. And I, and I, and I just end by saying that it's, it's got some real applications in, in the real economy. I mean, the, the agriculture is still quite a quite a bedrock in Vietnam's economy, and so the ability of farmers to um, to as, to access um, you know crop health information uh, or stock health information, market pricing information, input information, regulatory information, all of their smartphones has made a huge difference to the welfare of the agricultural population, not just the urban, you know, um, office working population. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's dizzying, dizzying to try and follow for an old man like me. Yeah, so I think implicit in what we've been saying here about smartphones is the idea that there's more of a consumer goods sector growing in Vietnam. Um, I think that's something we see in a lot of emerging markets, whether it's you know, China or India or Indonesia. Um, that's sort of a a theme that a lot of managers either directly or, or as a consequence of their stock picking process end up tapping into. Um, and I just wonder, I know in the past you've had electronics businesses, I think the jewelry business as well in the Vail portfolio. So I just wonder if there is sort of more of a growing consumer demand in Vietnam, or I should say growing demand for consumer goods, um, and whether that is impacting the portfolio at all? Yeah, for sure. So what are the dynamics we're talking about here is um, uh, is the demographics, you know, the, the curve of, 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 uh, of household formation. Um, and, um, you know, that, that means people moving away from the countryside and into the cities. And incidentally, that move of its own is equivalent to a, you know, a, a great big bump on GDP. Just you, you're moving somebody from a seasonal agricultural lifestyle to a modern urban lifestyle. I mean, there's, there's in, enormous productivity improvements in, in a GDP sense. Um, and and rising incomes, um, you know, growth. What have we got? I think we had 30 years of six over 6% economic growth in Vietnam. Um, you know, so incomes uh, rising. Um, and then people, and lifestyles change. People live, they don't live anymore in their, you know, big family units. They, you've got new young households being formed, kids. And so that propels the evolution of, of what, what's called modern trade. So we, we talk about um, uh, traditional trade and modern trade. Traditional trade, sometimes 
involves things like wet market. You know, we go to the market and everything's out there displayed, opposed to supermarkets, modern trade, where things, you know, maybe regrettably need to be packaged, but they are fresher and they stay long and you can buy them and you can put them in your fridge. You know, that's food. So, yes, uh, growth of retail um, is is a is a is a strong theme in our in our portfolio. Mobywell, the company you you refer to, is a uh, started off uh, purveying smartphones, strangely, uh, then moved very quickly into a, a white goods business, and most recently has has built up a um, pretty impressive um, fresh produce, um, uh, you know, food store chain. Um, great great company, yeah. Uh, and but you but you see the same thing happening not just in food and stuff like that but in, but in you know jewelry, in entertainment, leisure you can see the 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 growth of of so your point about China I think China has had a longer tradition of a uh, heavier invested fixed capital base you see that it's through from from its manufacturing capacities to its pr- production materials through its infrastructure. And all the rest of it, and credit, of course, in China is really quite high. It's three hundred and fifty-three over three hundred percent of GDP. In Vietnam, credit is only a hundred, just over a hundred percent of GDP. So we've had less capital invested. We've got less of that heavy asset base. We've got a higher share of of consumption in economic growth, and that's and that's humming. As you, you, I'm sure you saw when you when you were there, the streets pretty crowded at, at all times of day. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's it's difficult to convey to someone listening how dynamic and, and full of life it feels in Saigon when you're there. Um, I mean, I would if you've been to somewhere like Tokyo or Seoul, I think there's a level of similarity, but it's it's even more sort of intense and and, and urbanized. And um, I think I think that plays into one of the things you spoke about last year when I when I came to see you speak. That is also a theme in the portfolio, which is urbanization. Again, even beyond the sort of buzz that you feel when you're walking around cities in Vietnam. Uh, you, you see this as soon as you fly into, into Ho Chi Minh, which is the airport almost feels like it's in the middle of the city because the, the city was, you know, the, the airport was originally built on what was the outskirts. And then you have this urban sprawl um, that has, has kind of engulfed it. And, um, you know, I, I just wonder if that is still uh, something that you see as playing a role in the portfolio, because obviously urbanization isn't just about lots of people moving to the city. There's also lots of infrastructure, housing, and so on um, that, that comes with that. And so, yeah, if you can talk a bit about how that is affecting portfolio, I'd be, I'd be interested to hear. Um, <clears throat> well, urbanization. So, yes. You're, so what do we know? that I, I believe China's population is actually declining this year. Is that right? I thought I'm Yes, yes. So Vietnam's population is definitely not declining. It's growing by about a million people a year, but the um, the rate of growth is slowing. And at some point in time, uh, the workforce will cease to grow faster than the population as a whole. That's a, a demographic point there from an investment point of view. When the workforce stops growing faster than the population as a whole, because then you get an increase in what we refer to as the dependency ratio, don't you? But we haven't reached that point yet, but I think we will reach it in the not-too-distant future. Nonetheless, um, 
the urbanization so i think officially vietnam is urbanized to the tune of 35 or 37 percent uh china i think passed 50 percent or a good 10 years ago i believe and um and of course this country you know i don't, I don't know what the number is but it's 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 way above that so you know urbanization is is a feature of modern life and um it's an unstoppable trend as agriculture becomes more pro- productive mechanized you know that's a theme we've got going is mechanizing of ag- agriculture less labor is needed better opportunities offered in the urban environment manufacturing services hooked into this more productive environment so um that that trend is very much in in place in fact i mean the numbers on saigon where you recently were i I've been living there for a long, long time. For many years, we were told the population was five million, and nobody really believed it. But that, but you know, and then, and then, and then, and then, came out and, and then said, "Well, actually, no, the population is eight million. And we went, "Oh, well, that's a bit more like it." But then, then, just two years ago or three years ago, came and said, "Actually, it's not eight million. It's it's twelve million. And if you include the the people who work here during the day, it's actually two million more and it's growing at half a million a year so these these are the the sort of numbers that people are having to try and 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 uh cope for so it it lends itself to pressures um infrastructure as you rightly mentioned david roads water you know electricity networks all that stuff um and also opportunities like the need for residential housing. I mean, one of our core core holdings is a is a residential property maker. And when they when they do a project, they, you know, there's twenty thousand units in their project. Um, so these are cre- this is creation of small small townships that we're seeing, and that that trend is is in place. And all that then flows from it: shopping malls and uh, you know the urban paraphernalia that we take for granted. Yeah, you, you don't seem so keen on uh, on shopping malls. But um, anyway, so another thing that struck me while I was there, and again, this sort of goes back to what I was talking about with smartphones, where you know it's very easy to read about something in, in theory on an analyst note or, or a fund manager report, but actually seeing it in practice is rather different. Uh, and, and one area where I, I really noticed this was in, there was this growing trend in, in Vietnam, but also in East Asia for sort of bubble tea and... Um, cheap ice cream so there's in vietnam now you have hundreds of these missui stores which is like a chain of um of places that sell cheap ice cream and, and iced tea which i'm not a big fan of but you know each to their own uh but the, the thing that i didn't realize was just how vast this company is so it's actually a chinese company but it has more than twenty one thousand outlets in china and and is kind of expanding across southeast asia now even even into australia and yeah, I'm sure there's probably some listeners who are completely aware of this, and maybe I'm just uh, you know, Neanderthal who's not reading enough about trends in, in East Asia. Um, but that's something that I think you could so easily miss if you weren't really on the ground. And I just wonder if you could talk about you know, the benefits of being based in Vietnam, of you speak the language fluently, and just sort of having that local knowledge and understanding as opposed to be trying to manage things from afar and figure out what's going on the gr- going on on the ground well that's a question i can really only answer in one way isn't it but but yes i i mean i think i think you are hitting on something david um 
the world is a big place. And um, for those of us who are, you know, looking after our pensions and our nest eggs and making investments, it, it, it's, it's, it's absolutely important to have the best possible information. And information on the page or on the screen is one very useful sort of information, but it, it is by definition somewhat two-dimensional. And so, you know, getting out there and kicking the tires, as they say, is, um, is, you know, there's no substitute really for kicking the tires and getting a feel. But of course, you can't, you can't, you can't visit everywhere in the world that you want to invest, I guess, um, for every company. But it, I mean, there's no, there's no question that uh, the, the DNA of Dragon is, is investing in Vietnam. And so we have to be there. And incidentally, I mean, you know, I, I went there to learn the language and that's been a um you know probably one of the best investments i've ever made in my life being able to talk to people we don't realize that because so many people in the world speak english but if you want to go to a country where not everybody speaks english and you and you can't speak in their language i mean just imagine how 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 biased your view your your information flows are going to be and your ability to understand people and communicate and resolve problems create partnerships and all those sort of things. Um, so so being on the ground for us is, I mean, we have 170 people on the ground, which is which is quite big, but, you know, we, we, we have aspirations to, 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 to do our job completely. And, um, and, and yes, I mean, I've noticed this with places that I visit, you go, blimey, I didn't realise that was the case. Uh, and, but, but, you know, short of, of offering to... Um, to charter a large plane and invite all of your listeners over to Vietnam. I'm not quite sure what, what, what we can do, but um, I mean, from, you know, the purpose of, of us talking together, I think is to illustrate to listeners that there, that there are people around the world, whatever, whatever markets you're looking to invest in, there are people on the world, on the ground who, who can, who, who can and should, be providing commentary and 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 information flows back i think that's that's um um you know that that's 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 our job de- description actually that's our kpi really yeah yeah and on a related note to that i mean when you started dragon that's close to 30 years ago now there was, i think there was no stock market in vietnam um you know there was there was just little in the way of financial infrastructure obviously that's that's changed a lot in the intervening period um, but I wonder if there's still some risks around corporate governance. You know, if I think about the UK, there's a very clear corporate structure for listed companies. I think most companies here have quite a good idea of how to interact with investors and, and what's expected from them, with, from them and so on. Um, but I just wonder if there are any risks there in Vietnam. Or again, if you think it's sort of critical to, to be on the ground, have local knowledge of how things work uh, in a market where perhaps things haven't developed quite as much or just in general if you can talk about how how things have developed over the, the past 30 years or so um well no i i think i was with a with a, a very knowledgeable um uh, investment client this morning who made the point that investing in emerging markets um which i think we could probably say vietnam is although technically it doesn't fit the definition it, you know one stumbles across the fact that high economic growth on its own is not necessarily um, a sufficient indicator of good investment returns. What you need perhaps more than high economic growth is 
is a market infrastructure. You need developed capital markets and an institutional uh, and governance infrastructure. And then the markets need to sit in the financial system, which needs to be, you know, reasonably competently managed. So the, these are definitely um, very, very real facts. You know, happily, I think Vietnam is a relatively competent set of technocrats in charge of its monetary and fiscal systems, and they have a strong commitment to the development of their country. Um, but we have, within the markets, we have a, a very high degree of retail activity and um, a, a lack of institutions. So that, that, that definitely um, leaves you open to volatility. You know, if everybody's doing the same thing the same day and you don't have the breadth of, of uh, and the depth of different kinds of institution. So, in fact, setting up a pension fund, pension program is, you know, anybody who knows anything about this will know that you, you absolutely don't get rich by developing pension programs because, by definition, the, this is a sort of 30-year equation. Um, <clears throat> but we've done it because we think it's it's part of the um, the formation of the building of the, the structure of capital markets in the same way uh, as the fact that we've, you know, we've invested in a securities company and we've invested in a credit rating agency and we're investing in a administrator of, of investment products. So we're investing across, if you like, Dragon to try and promote the growth, which will, in effect, going back to the early conversation, have some role in reducing the levels of risk i believe yeah so you make a couple of interesting points there i mean the one on economic growth not necessarily leading to good returns is something you've seen pretty clearly in china over the past two decades where you have massive economic growth but actually if you were passively investing in some of the indices you would have seen negative returns um, but i think the, the the point on being a part of the emerging markets index is arguably more relevant for Vale and, and for listeners as well so in the minds of a lot of people, and, and that includes fund managers, um, I think Vietnam is really seen uh, in practice as, as an emerging market. But it, for, for people putting together indices, it's not. Um, my understanding is that's to do with um, limits on foreign ownership. But it's also something that the authorities in Vietnam are looking to change. Um, and I just wonder how that would impact Dragon and Vail, given that a change in the index would probably see quite a large inflow of, of funds. So, um, yes, if I, if I think about the next, um, <clears throat> next five years, right. Um, uh, I, I think about more than the next five years actually, but if, if, if we, if we say what, 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 what can investors look to expect in the next five years in Vietnam? Well, I think we've got the, the, um, the base, framework in place for for reasonably solid economic growth but as um, we've both just said that on its own isn't sufficient but that provides sufficient oxygen for companies to make profits but i think what we should really focus on is two things one which we've alluded to which is the growth of the domestic investor base and in particular uh things like pensions and life insurance, life insurance sector is a big, is a big, big sector there, but it doesn't yet invest in equities in, you know, and this will happen. Of course, it will happen. It happens everywhere in the world. Um, so the growth of the domestic investor base 
And then secondly, to your um, directly to your question, the promotion of Vietnam from its somewhat orphaned frontier market status to emerging market status. Um, as we know, and you've alluded, David, I think a lot of people around the world in effect treat Vietnam as an emerging market, but the nature of the, the way that we all invest governed by benchmark indices means that if you take too much of a stake in Vietnam, you're actually going off benchmark and you're therefore taking a professional career risk. So understandably, people are somewhat cautious about that. So what's needed for Vietnam to become an emerging market is, um, is yes, that it's not so much foreign ownership per se as perceptions of unequal access for domestic and international investors. So an example of this would be that, um, you know, many Vietnamese companies don't re- write annual reports in English. Okay, so it doesn't trouble me, right, because I spent two years at Hanoi University, but it troubles quite reasonably, you know, a bunch of fund managers around the world who can't understand, you know, can't read what companies are reporting about there. So <clears throat> we need to get companies, which we are doing, getting companies to um, uh, to begin to report in, in, in English and have English on their websites. That's one, one angle. There is this notion, as you said, of limits on ownership in foreign ownership companies. Not that people have a problem with the ownership limit, but the the way that they're able to invest and trade in, trade in and trade out of those companies. So that's a somewhat technical issue. And then there's a, um, a, a, a third issue, which is that, um, in effect, foreign investors are asked to pre-position. So that means to put their money up first and their shares up first before they can trade in the markets, whereas locals have managed to get around that requirement. They have that requirement, but they managed to get around it by borrowing money locally. So, you know, and that will be resolved by the introduction of a central clearing system, which is being installed this year as we speak. Maybe it'll be ready by the end of the year. So somewhat technical issues. Um, And the Vietnamese, I, I was with the new head of the Vietnamese securities regulator, couple of months ago and she goes um during my uh, time the top kpis for vietnam to become a an emerging market so i think it's not like it's you know we're talking to people from mars people understand what the issues are they understand the significance as well i mean the world bank has has indicated uh, they think that becoming an emerging market would 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 relatively easily haul 50 billion dollars into the Vietnamese market. Now, it's quite a lot of money. The Vietnamese market is $230 billion at the moment. So that's a 20% increase in, not in prices, by the way, let me hasten to add, but just, you know, just that volume of attention into the markets be quite significant. So um, both of these issues are ones that we should all be keeping our eyes uh, out for I think Vietnam will come an emerging market I, you know we've been wrong so many times on this so you know it's got to be in the next two three years it has definitely got to be in the next two three years but it's it, it, it's down to a problem of execution and prioritization and capacity within the regulator okay well that is probably a good point at which for us to stop so Dominic Scriven 
Chairman and Founder of Dragon Capital. Thank you very much for taking the time to speak to us today. And hopefully we will chat again soon. Thank you very much, David. Thank you to all your listeners. Um, and remember, have a happy Ho Chi Minh's birthday. <laughs> yeah, happy birthday, Ho Chi Minh as well. Don't forget that.